after school, and certainly on every holiday. The four of us used to play at healing. Out in the stone garden, under a clear blue Texas sky. I'm not quite sure which of us first invented the game. Or that any of us would want to claim credit for that today. Perhaps it all came about because of all of the stories we heard at Sabbath school about missionary doctors and nurses toiling over broken bodies in far-off jungle places. Maybe it sprang from the fevered imaginations of six-year-olds who had been watching too much of Dr. Kildare on television. That dates me, I know, but some of you will recognize the name. In any event, by halfway through the first grade, the game was firmly established. Keith would bring with him an old stethoscope that he somehow managed to smuggle out of the house every afternoon. And Kathy, Kathy would bring a group of kitchen utensils that had been magically transformed into surgical instruments. I would bring along my red and silver Etch-a-Sketch machine. And Tina, as I remember it, Tina didn't have to bring anything along. Tina had the sweetest smile that a first grade boy ever fell in love with. Children's games, as we all remember, children's games have very definite roles and rules to them. Things have to be done decently and in the same order, or else the game falls apart. And in our particular version of the age-old game of medicine, the patient for the day would have to lie down on an open bench in the stone garden that had been miraculously transformed into an operating table. With knowing looks, the doctor of the hour would lean over and murmur wise observations to the attending nurse, which of course was Tina. The electrocardiogram machine would be called for and laid on the patient's chest. It was better known as the Etch-a-Sketch. And by turning the white plastic dials on the Etch-a-Sketch, you could create the wildest arrhythmias you ever did see. Truth is, those supposed heartbeats looked more like the gyrations of my retirement portfolio in the last several years. If you wanted to show that a patient was really ill, you flatlined him. It was the patient's role, of course, to patiently endure all of this, to moan and to groan at all the appropriate intervals. If you felt particularly daring, you might even feign unconsciousness from which only the ministrations of Nurse Tina could awaken you. You would waken from your comatose condition to discover Dr. Keith leaning over you with that curious half-smile of his, while Tina looked on adoringly. Because children are incredible optimists, no one ever died in our little game of medicine. At very worst, a patient would only appear to be dead. 
The whole point of the game was the exercise of superior skill by the medical staff that had saved yet another difficult case. Oh, the games that children play. What a strange prophetic forecast they offer for the values of our lives. Today, Keith is a successful psychiatrist in Colorado. Kathy went on to earn a doctorate in nursing. Tina, well, Tina broke the mold, but then as far as I was concerned, Tina always broke the mold. And me, I make so bold as to stand behind pulpits and talk about healing. That game we played in the stone garden on weekday afternoons has become the real stuff of our everyday lives. We never allowed for death in those backyard games as children. Every sick patient would eventually recover. Every wounded cowboy or Indian would rise to play the game the next day. Our little world, it was built on the unsubstantiated belief that life goes on. Recovery always happens. We're going to be playing again tomorrow. Hope, life, play, they were all inextricably connected. Without hope, there was no reason to play. But the story that Luke tells us in the seventh chapter of his gospel brings us squarely up against a moment in which no one felt at all like playing because no one had any reason left to hope. Hope had disappeared as quickly as had the last struggling breaths of that young man who now lay dead on the funeral stretcher. His teeth were clenched in one last spasm of pain. His curly black hair was damp with the perspiration of his last fever. There is something, there is something about the death of children to which we human beings will never be reconciled. Sometimes in the course of things, sometimes we can accept or even understand the death of an elderly person who's lived a long, fruitful life. In our own quiet way, we have been preparing for that possibility. We can even sometimes come to grips with the death of a middle-aged person through disease or accident, even though it leaves a family lost, maybe leaderless, but nothing. (laughs) Nothing in our bone disposes us to understand the death of children, our children or anyone's children. There's something profoundly unnatural about children preceding their parents to the grave. It scares us. It scars us. Worse than any other fear we have. With the death of children comes the death of hope as well. The future doesn't look bright anymore. No, it looks like a long, gray corridor of time. And on that day in the village of Nain, 
I suspect that people who never otherwise went to funerals at all came out that day to stand with this unnamed widow as she walked behind the funeral stretcher that carried her only son. Her loss, it was much more than her loss. The whole village felt it keenly. Not only had death dealt a blow to a young man they knew and loved, but death had dealt a double blow by by blasting their hopes as well. I mean, if young men like that could be cut down in the prime of life, would life ever again be sweet or clear? How could the children go out in the street again and and play their funny little games of of doctor and, and rabbi and carpenter? It's very likely that the entire town had turned out for this funeral in the hilltop village of Nain. And as just now as Luke shows us the scene in the seventh chapter of his gospel, the somber procession is passing through the gates down toward the cemeteries that to this day still line the way to Nain. It was the worst possible day for a funeral. The sun shining warm and cheerful in the sky. The songbirds twittering in the olive trees along the edges of the road. The wheat down in the valley blowing gently in the morning breeze. The snow-capped heights of Mount Hermon standing stark against a blue, blue sky to the north. Oh, it was the worst possible day for a funeral. Everything in the natural world conspired to sing a song of praise and of hope, and everything in the human world conspired to sing a song of woe and the death of hope. An entire village was going down. Down from the steep and rocky road to the cemetery, down from the safety and the companionship of the houses clustered on the hill, down to the lonesome cemetery where they would bury their lonely dead. Mourners, professional mourners and real ones, filled the air with wails and sobs. It it, it was hard to know on that painful morning who was weeping because they had been paid to weep and who was weeping because their heart was ready to break in two. The funeral stretcher was carried by the young men of the village, probably the friends of the young man who had died. Each one of them knowing the solemn, the awful weight of carrying someone they loved down to his final resting place. Do you know that weight? I do. I do. And just at that moment, just at that moment, as providence would have it, Jesus and his companions were going up, up that same steep, rocky trail that led to Nain. It was a place that Jesus undoubtedly knew well. Nain was a mere six miles from Nazareth, 90-minute walk. He had probably been there dozens of times in the 28 years he lived in Nazareth. Chances are he had many friends in that hilltop village. 
He knew every turn in the twisting road that led up from the valley of Esdralon, the valley where Deborah and Barak had defeated crafty Sisera centuries before. Up past the town of Endor, where discouraged Saul had gone to seek the spirit of dead Samuel. Up past the vineyards and the olive trees, up through the gates to the village. Two great crowds of people were on the move that day. One of them discouraged, frantic with grief. The other one buoyant and cheerful because they had among them the one who called himself the resurrection and the life. It was as if a wedding party had met that funeral procession on the steep path. No one knew what to do. Was it appropriate to blow the horns and rattle the tin cans? Or should you turn on the headlights and be somber? Wear black. Jesus' sensitive eyes quickly sized up the situation. He was on a collision course with a grieving widow and her dead son. Unless he told his followers to step aside and let the mourners pass, the two groups would soon be so inextricably mingled on the path that no one was, would know who's going up and who's coming down. Disciples with thanksgivings on their lips they'd suddenly be surrounded by weeping people and desperate people broken by their grief would soon be next to people singing praises and hosannas at the top of their lungs but you know Jesus cared very little for the etiquette of the situation he cared very little for the etiquette because he had both the will and the power to bring their grief to an end. The scripture tells us that when he saw that widow, his heart went out to her. I, I love that expression. His heart went out to her. How perfectly it captures the attitude Jesus has toward, toward any of us when we're hurt or wounded sinful his heart went out to her he saw her grief for what it was it was the broken-hearted lament of a woman who was now without hope just as much as she was without money or resources no husband to support her no son to care for her in her old age she would now be reduced to living off the generosity of her friends she might even end up begging for her bread. There would never be any little grandsons to bounce on her knee. There would be no playful little granddaughters to tug at her skirts and say, Grandma, tell us what it was like to live in the olden days. There would be no one else to talk to on those long evenings when the other village women retreated into their houses with their husbands and their children. All her hopes lay dead and cold on that funeral stretcher she was following. And she was burying more than her son, and she knew it. Discouraged, disheartened people don't last so long. Chances are that Failing health and loneliness and lack of resources 
would drive her to an early grave of her own. And just at the moment when we would have expected Jesus to put an arm around her shoulder or to stand there beside the body and shed tears as he had done at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus says a very surprising thing. Don't cry, he says. Or as some of the better translations have it, you can stop crying now. That, that's a curious thing to be saying at a funeral. In more than 40 years of conducting funerals, I've never even once thought of saying, you can stop crying now. Right at the moment when we would have expected Jesus to be validating her feelings and, and telling her that her tears would do her good and offering his shoulder to cry on, he tells her to stop crying. He seems to suggest there is no reason to go on weeping. My friends, in case you haven't noticed it, Jesus is always doing surprising things. At just those moments when we think he will act in some predictable way and do the thing we've always expected, he does something we never would have thought of. When we've just accomplished something big and our hearts are swelling with pride and the praise of our peers, Jesus says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And when we're feeling so wretched and so low, and we think that no one is holy and pure and righteous as Jesus would want to have anything to do with slime like us, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you believe it? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. When we're planning revenge on someone who's wounded us, and let's be honest, we do things like that. Jesus says to us, turn the other cheek. Love those who persecute you. And when we're sure, absolutely sure, we've blown it big and we've wasted all our chances at eternal life, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If you want to worship a predictable Lord, it will not be Jesus. If you want a safe and uneventful discipleship, in which you glide from here into the kingdom. You won't be following Jesus. It's Jesus who thrives on surprise. It's Jesus who delights in what we call dilemmas. It's Jesus who revels in resurrections. And on that morning of mourning, Jesus took their grief and he turned it on its head and he brought it up dancing. He had declared that it was the essence of his mission to reverse our painful, hurting, broken condition as human beings. 
He said it was to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, cause the blind to see, let all who were oppressed go free. And you know, when you've got a mission statement like that, you can afford to do a few surprising things, even on days like funerals. Scripture doesn't tell us how this widow reacted to his strange command to stop crying. Doesn't tell us. Maybe the tears on her face freeze-dried as she recognized it was Jesus and there were possibilities. Or maybe, maybe she looked at him in bewildered disbelief that any stranger could say anything so thoughtless at a funeral. We don't know. She might have been a longtime friend of Jesus whose heart sprang up with joy when she saw him. Or she might have been one who looked at him and thought, I am being taunted on the worst day of my life. But whatever feelings his words provoked in her, Jesus didn't leave her waiting very long to figure out what he intended. Luke tells us he walked over immediately to the stretcher and he did something that no priest and no rabbi and no Pharisee in all the land would have ever dared to do. He put his hand on the funeral stretcher. Now to us, we're used to seeing mourners touch a casket, gestures of affection, saying goodbye. So it's hard for us to understand how the Jews of Jesus' day thought of the presence of death. According to the law of Moses, anyone who touched a dead body or the bed on which a dead body lay was prevented for a time from entering the worship of the Lord. In the language of that day, they were ceremonially unclean. Jesus risked defilement because he had unnecessarily come in contact with a dead body. Jesus risked the probability that he would be excluded from the synagogue on the next Sabbath by some unctuous elder who told him that he had reached out and touched an unclean thing and therefore he could not worship God with other believers. But as he did on so many other occasions, Jesus didn't show any fear about the censure of his enemies. He knew what he was about. He was about his mission, and his mission was the business of making hurting people like us whole again. He risked defilement with virtually every person that he healed, with every leper, with every demoniac, with every paralyzed man, with every crippled woman, and you know, I think he did it all with a laugh and a look on his face that said, come now, be serious. How does making someone else whole make me unclean? And then Jesus said something. He said something to that lifeless form on the funeral stretcher that no rabbi and no priest and no Pharisee in all the land would have dared to say because it was blasphemously impossible for them to do. Young man, he said, I say to you, get up. Now, it sometimes falls to those who speak from the front of a church to give good advice. So I'm going to offer some this morning. If you're going to make a habit of going to funerals and telling the dead to get up, 
you'd better have the ability to make it happen. Or you're going to be torn limb from limb by some angry mourners. But you know, Jesus was in no danger from difficult people that day. Jesus had then, Jesus has now uncreated, unimaginable power in his hands. He calls the dead to life more easily than I used to call my teenage son from an afternoon nap. And on that strange, confusing morning so long ago, his word penetrated the ears of a dead young man and recreated in him the ability to hear and to respond. And Luke, the doctor, always interested in the medical details of the case, Luke says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. I bet he did. Can you imagine, my friends, what it might be like to lose consciousness and go under, surrounded by dozens of grieving relatives and friends in your own home, and then, and then wake up in the middle of a funeral procession five feet off the ground, half a mile away? I'd love to know what he said. Did he pick up in mid-sentence where he was telling his grief-stricken mother that everything would be okay? Maybe he was confessing a long list of things he had done because he thought his last moment had come. Maybe he was in the middle of distributing all of his prized possessions to his friends who would now have to give them back. How bewildering to be the last person on the scene to know what was going on. But you know, if there was any bewilderment, if there was any embarrassment on his part, I'm sure it disappeared when he looked into the face of Jesus. Think about it. At the height he was being carried, it is probably literally true that the first thing he saw when he opened his eyes from the sleep of death was nothing other than the face of Jesus. This nameless young man Resurrected at the gate of his own city, he was the first one to know the consolation with which millions of Christians have closed their eyes in the sleep of death in the centuries since then, knowing that the next thing they're going to see on that great getting up morning is nothing other than the face of Jesus. Like him, the righteous dead on that great day are going to sit up and begin to talk but you know, I think rather than continuing their confessions or handing out their possessions, I think the thing that's going to happen, the, the words that are going to be on every resurrected tongue go something like this. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, all praise to the gentle healer. My friends, I want you to use those rusty, sacred imaginations of yours this morning. I want you to think of what it must have been like to be outside the walls of Nain in that morning so long ago when, when Jesus simply spoke a word that raised a young man back to life and gave a widow her son back. When he proved conclusively he's the Lord over pain and death. Do you think 
Do you think that those people in the crowd just quietly turned around and dispersed back to their individual homes? Do you think, my friends, that all those who had just witnessed the foretaste of the final defeat of Satan, they just looked at each other and said, well, wasn't that nice? What are we having for lunch? Do you think, my friends, that all of those deliriously delighted people, all of those ecstatic ex-mourners, do you think they just shuffled back and picked up their tools and their duff's claws and went back to work? My friends, I don't know about your sacred imaginations, but I can tell you what I see in mine. I see a crowd of people almost leaping into the air out of excitement for what Jesus has done. I hear a thunder of voices outside the walls of Nain, picking up the words of the psalmist and hurling them to the sky. You have turned our mourning into dancing, Lord. Our feet are filled with your praise. I feel the strong arms of Jesus and fellow believers around me as we lift up our praise to our incredible healer. See, my friends, this morning, I participate by faith in the victory of Jesus. I share this morning in the triumph of his healing power. I draw strength this morning from the knowledge. 2,000 years ago, a gentle healer named Jesus brought someone he loved back to life, and that one day soon, very soon, he's going to call me and those I love unto life eternal. But I have to admit, I've been having an argument with the Lord recently. Perhaps I shouldn't admit it. I have been having an argument with the Lord about where I'm going to be on resurrection morning. You see, part of me wants to be at a little hillside cemetery in Heath, Massachusetts where my grandfather, whose name I carry, my grandmother, my aunts, cousins, my mother, my father, are all buried. Oh, I want to be there. I want to be there on resurrection morning. But I also want to be at a cemetery on the east side of Syracuse, New York, where my Italian grandparents lie waiting the resurrection morning. They struggled to come to faith, and sometimes they struggled in faith, but they died in the hope that they would see Jesus again. I want to be in Syracuse on resurrection morning, and, 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 but then I want to be, be at a little churchyard in central Michigan where the best friend of my teen and college years waits for Jesus. Jeff and I were first competitors for the top grades in class, and then reluctant prayer partners, and then friends, and then best friends. When we started seminary, we decided to share an apartment Three weeks into seminary, 
He went that way one morning to class and I drove the other way and Jeff never made it. I stood at the open face of that little churchyard grave and I thought about a day, a day that can't come soon enough. Oh, I want to be in central Michigan on resurrection morning. You have your stories too. Some of you are having your arguments with the Lord. I don't know how he's going to do it, but somehow he's going to make us happy beyond words on that great morning. My friends, not only do I believe this morning that Jesus can bring a dead disciple back to life, but I have come to believe in the last few months that Jesus can bring comatose congregations and quiescent conferences back to life as well. Thank God, thank God that in his goodness, this congregation has never died. It's been a witness to the power of Jesus in this community for decades. But let's be honest. The events of the last 15 months have been a hit on all of us. The collective sorrow, the pain, the losses that each one of you can enumerate, the friends, the loved ones, the fears. They've driven us to a moment in which we barely dare to hope. And even before this pandemic arrived, We were watching the increasing isolation of believers from each other. Somehow not understanding how much we need each other, how much we are healed in the presence of each other. Throughout this body, there has been a sense of illness and disease well beyond this congregation all over this movement. The woundedness of individuals has become the woundedness of a movement, and right now, we stand in need of a gentle healer as never before in our history. But my friends, as I said a moment ago, I do have a sacred imagination, and I'm here this morning to tell you that it works real well. I'm here in the name of that gentle healer to tell you that I see a future for this movement in which healing abounds. I see broken, shattered lives that can be made whole when God's people gather together and express the love that redeems them. I see this movement as a place where lonely, discouraged people can walk into the doors and find a community that will embrace them. I see our churches as places where sinners, sinners like us, can find healing and recovery in the presence of godly friends. I see this body as a place where where the victims of abuse and their victimizers can find cleansing and healing and recovery through Jesus. I see this body as a place where those who are struggling with addictions, yes, I said the word addictions in an Adventist church, those struggling with addictions will get not more criticism and censure, they'll find support and encouragement. I see this body as a place where those who have had the self-esteem crushed out of them 
will have the arms of God's people wrapped around them. I want to be part of a healed body. I want to be part of a healing movement and community. I want to be part of a church that, like Jesus, is unafraid of sin, unafraid of dirt, a church that wades into the community with its arms open, a church that gathers in and includes and doesn't separate and exclude. If that's the church you want to be part of, just say something to Jesus this morning. If that's the church you want to be part of, in your hand, in your heart, let there be some upward reach. You don't have to come to the front. You don't have to know all the words to just as I am. All you have to do is to tell Jesus, that's, that's the kind of church I want to belong to. I need to know today, are there people out there who still dream of what we could be? Are there people here this morning who long to see this church and this movement worldwide be more than what it is today? If so, say with me those words those villagers in Nain must have said, Lord, you have turned our mourning into dancing. Our feet will be filled with your praise. The prophecy of, for this church is of healing for its members, healing in its community, healing for the friends, the neighbors, the broken people who, like us, need the grace and mercy of Jesus every day. To him, to Jesus alone, be glory forever and ever.